You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Providence. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning. If this is your first time at Providence, we'd love to welcome you. We're glad that you are gathering with us today. Uh, My name is Lauren Schreiber, and I serve at Providence as the director of the Providence Road Academy. Um, And Providence is a group of people formed around a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And for that reason, every Sunday when we get together, we open our Bibles together because we believe that the word of God has been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to continue through a sermon series that we've been in all year called King and Crown, where we have been talking uh, and reading verse by verse through the book of Mark, um, and of course, looking at the life of Jesus through that book, but also specifically talking about how our culture finds its identity outside of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible with you, we do have some under the seat if you prefer to use one. Um, And if you don't own one at your house, you're welcome to take that one as a gift from us. So again, this morning, we're going to be in Mark 15, verses 21 through 32. So once you're there, if you're able, would you please um, stand as we read God's word together? Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. Uh, We're glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself uh, with us this morning. We're continuing our work through the book of Mark, and we are kind of coming to the end of the uh, the series and also obviously the end of the book along with it as as Jesus is uh, on his way to the cross. Here we see he's going to be crucified and uh, the crowds are following with him. Now, we have a lot of work to do here, uh, only 11 verses, but each time we go through, uh, you know, especially major events like the cross of Christ, you could spend, I don't know, like, I don't, how long could we spend on this? We go through every line's packed full of meaning, you know, and so each time, even if we have 11 verses, I feel like I want to do our due diligence with it, and so I want to jump in and pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word uh, so that we can have enough time, because we are going to be doing a couple of baptisms together as a church, and so uh, I got to do what I never do, which is preach on time, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll jump right into it if you'll bow your heads. Father, thank you for your word. We are just so grateful, my God, that this morning we're not reliant upon man's wisdom. We're grateful, my God, that you have provided for us in the clarity of your word 
revelation from on high. You've revealed yourself and you have magnified and exalted clearly your son, the Lord Jesus. And so we do ask, Holy Spirit, would you minister to us through the power of your word now? Meet our needs, we ask. Illuminate to us what we need to see in this passage. And God, I pray even in my frailty, if I fall short of saying the things that I ought to say, I pray that you, my God, would speak to us together that we might see in your word that which you desire for us to see this morning. And in so doing, that it would produce the 30, the 60, the hundredfold harvest that you have promised in our lives, in our families, and in our church at large. We ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So we followed last week's text, and if you remember, we talked about the criminal Barabbas particularly, and that the criminal Barabbas is exchanged uh, in a way for the Lord Jesus. They deny Pilate when he asks, should I release to you the Lord Jesus, the King of the Jews? They say, we don't want anything to do with him. Crucify him, but give us Barabbas. And we talked about how this exchange was illustrative of the the great exchange that happened on the cross for all of humankind, that any who would believe upon Christ that Christ made himself a criminal, was numbered amongst the transgressors, and that we get to go free as sons and daughters of the Father who had rightly been condemned. We get to go free because Jesus takes on our punishment. Now, we're going to follow the criminal theme here again this morning as Jesus continues to be treated uh, like a criminal, both by the criminals and then poetically he's crucified, the Bible tells us, between two criminals who have a conversation with Jesus that's important for us to note, and we'll mention that right at the very end of our sermon this morning. Now, I want to focus on the position that this passage presents to us. Just as there were two crowds that were at the trials of Jesus, one was uh, silenced and in in many ways uh, silenced by the authorities, namely those who are recording what's happening to Jesus, but aren't aren't able to get really much of uh, any change out of the authorities of the day. This would be like uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's at the foot of the cross, or John, who's at the foot of the cross. There is a small contingency of people who support Christ and love Christ and don't want this to happen. And yet there's the other crowd, which obviously hates Christ. And what the Bible tells us is that there are still two crowds in human history today. We tend to believe that we live in a complex world with many different religious systems. And in some sense, that is true. There are a lot of different ideas. But the, the Bible depicts the spiritual realm in a much different manner. Christ stands at the crux of human history, and every day, the Bible tells, or every one, one day, the Bible tells us, will be judged by a single standard. Namely, who do you say that Christ is? That question that was posed to Peter and the disciples. How did we respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ? In other words, which crowd do we join? Paul defined these crowds as those who are being saved in one camp and those who are perishing. He, de- he described them as those to whom the gospel is the aroma of life on one hand and those to whom the gospel is the stench of death on the other. Now, we can know which crowd we're a part of on the basis of the object of our faith. Notice I didn't say the quality of our faith because the quality of your faith and mine is contingent upon a lot of subjective things like how much sleep did you get last night? You know, how long did it take you to get here and was there a lot of traffic in this construction-filled town? Did your kids sleep really well or did they not sleep well? Did they really make you angry this morning? Did they, are they doing well in school or are they doing, you know, 
I guess the opposite of well. It's euphemistic. There's a lot of like degrees. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. There's like a standard of anything that's sim, you know, anything that isn't going to get me a phone call, and then there's all these other things. And our quality of our faith is really contingent as human beings on the basis of how things are going. You know, we see this in the Old Testament, right? When Israel is blessed and redeemed by the Lord, they tend to be on spiritual highs. They find themselves in the wilderness, a little bit hungry. They're ready to stage a coup against Moses. You know, that's us. No, but we can know what crowd we're in, not on the basis of the quality of our faith, but on the object of our faith. What do we say about the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is he? And then secondarily, the legitimacy of that faith is born forth, Jesus tells us, by the fruit of our lives. You'll know them by their fruits, so the life that we then live. So I want to focus not just on what they're saying, the crowds, but their behaviors as well. And the reason for that is I want to draw conclusions on that basis. What can we surmise from the crowds on the basis of what they're shouting? But also, what about the characters that make their way into this story that are not a part of the crowds, but we're really not sure about them. That's what I want to do. And I want to start with those who cry out, crucify him. I'm going to read starting in verse 22, okay? It says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. In case you wondered, if you ever heard Calvary, Christ was crucified on Calvary, that's the Latin version of Golgotha, okay? Calvary equals skull in Latin. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is really interesting because Jesus refuses this concoction here at the beginning of the crucifixion. He later will take the sour wine at the end, and there's really an important reason why. I just want to mention this concoction, wine mixed with myrrh, is a a sedative of sorts. It's kind of like taking pain medicine before the cross, and he says he won't do it. Let's continue. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, quote, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him one to another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and we may believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, obviously, these taunts are very grotesque. I want to point out to you a couple of sermons ago, I mentioned that Jesus' response to Judas and the guards that came with him in the garden was, this is your hour under the power of darkness. And I pointed out a few sermons ago that this is a very spiritually dark moment in human history as not just the people come out against Christ, but the forces of evil manifest themselves. The Bible tells us that Satan enters the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray the Lord. That's pretty intense, you know. I know it's Halloween time. That's really dark. So in this moment, we're seeing this scene that is very spiritually dark. They're taunting the Lord Jesus Christ, saying terrible things. And I want to point out to you the spiritual form that these taunts take by drawing your attention to the beginning of Jesus's ministry when he was out in the desert in the wilderness and he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And if you remember, Satan had shown up to him after his fast was over and he had tempted Jesus to try to cut the ministry of Christ out at the very beginning before it ever starts. And I believe there's a parallel between the taunts that are being cast at Christ here and the temptations that were given to Christ then. For instance, 
They offer him wine mixed with myrrh. It's something that seems kind and maybe even was, much like Peter who was trying to do a good thing, saying, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. I would never let you die. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, for your mind is on the things of the flesh and not on the things of God. You see, even the well-meaning can be used in these moments by spiritual darkness. And so perhaps there's people well-meaning saying, Jesus, comfort yourself with these drugs. Comfort yourself with this wine mixed with myrrh. It sounds a lot like after the fast of Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Now, would it have been sinful for Jesus to eat after the fast was over? No. But Jesus didn't say that it was the eating. It was the using the power that he knew that he had to take the stones and make them bread to be satiated on that which he could provide for himself in the wilderness rather than what? The word of God that I eat Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is what nourishes him. That's what Jesus said. Jesus, of course, denies taking on the full punishment at the cross, the full pain that it would cause him. And then the second thing that's said is, oh, destroy your temple and you'll raise it up in three days. Why don't you do that now? You see, you should just save yourself. Now, remember, that should come to mind, the second temptation. Satan brings Jesus to the what? Pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you're to cast yourself down right here in front of all these people, you know legions of angels will catch you. They won't let your foot dash the stone. He quotes the scripture. And then they'll all believe. Here at the cross, they're shouting out at him, if you just come down from that cross, everyone will believe you. Why don't you just come down here and destroy the temple, raise it in three days. You can do this. And then finally, the chief priests and the scribes say, Christ the King, save yourself, and then we'll believe, then we'll bow down, then we'll see who you really are. And if you remember, Satan's last temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was that if you would but bow down to me, I'll make everyone believe and bow down to you, all the nations, all the kingdoms. All you have to do is bow to me. I point this out because they all cry out for Jesus to save himself. They focus on a sign, just like Satan was seeking to have Christ utilize his power and use his sign in the wilderness. They seek out and they say that they might believe. And now we know this is wicked, of course, because of course they would not believe. They don't even believe when Jesus rises from the dead. (laughs) Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and he reveals himself to like 500 people at once and they still had nothing to do with it. It's totally dishonest. They had already decided Jesus was not the Messiah that they would accept. He had done many signs, just not ones according to their liking. No, Christ did not choose to utilize the power that he possessed as God in the flesh. Instead, he takes the path of the cross to Calvary. He takes the path of difficulty. He takes the path of death. Now, as the providence of God would have it, though, this is my point. In all this spiritual darkness, as the providence of God would have it, the crowds against Jesus are taunting him. Take your power. Prove yourself. Give us a sign, and then we'll believe. And all the while, they're blinded to all the signs that are very obvious that even they themselves are carrying out. They miss that they're becoming a part in a play that they would never have wanted to be. They're saying, show us a sign, then we'll believe, and they themselves are the bad guys. You ever thought about that? You're really, you know, thinking that you're the good guy, you end up being the bad guy in a scenario? That's this situation. I want to read to you Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18. Listen to this. Many of you may have read this before. Some of you may not have. What happens at the crucifixion of Christ is not merely interesting. It's God-ordained at every level. 
it was prophesied, it was prepared, and everything is meticulous. There's no coincidences. I want you to listen to, this is King David thousands of years before Christ is crucified, and he's writing these things. I want you to think, whether King David knows it or not, pick up on what's happening at this scene and what David says here in this passage. Starting in verse 1, this one should really jump out to you. What did Christ say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You ever heard a sermon on that passage? This is David saying it thousands of years before. So maybe Jesus is saying on the cross, go back and read what David wrote. This is how it had to have happened. Let's keep on going. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And yet you are holy. Sounds like the garden prayer. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. Now think about Christ and how he's being treated here. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they make mouths at me. How about this word? And they wag their heads. That's in the passage, by the way. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Those are in quotes because David is saying that's what they taunt him with. Look, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in him, right? Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan, they surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Listen to this. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Remember Jesus gets thirsty on the cross? For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Listen to this one. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, why do I read that? I read that because they're mocking Jesus, demanding that he show them a sign, and what they miss all around them is they are the sign. They're actually living out the sign. It was written thousands of years before, and not like kind of, sort of. (laughs) These are specific things that are spoken. They specifically happen in specific ways. I can go on, by the way. The fact that Jesus is crucified with criminals. Isaiah says that he'd be numbered with the transgressors. They put an inscription over his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. And then when they questioned him and said, hey, don't put that there. Say he said it. Pilate says, no, I'm going to keep what I wrote there. They miss everything that's right in front of them. Now, I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating. The scene of the cross ties us in knots inwardly, if we read it rightly, for a reason. The reason that this scene kind of ties us in knots is, on one sense, we're Christians. We look at the cross, we call it Good Friday for a reason. What looks like defeat is victory. What's happening here is the very thing that we sing about because we know that if this not happened, we have no hope. The shed blood of Jesus, we just sang about it because it's through the shed blood of Jesus that we're forgiven. And in that sense, 
you know, we worship because of Good Friday. On the other hand, we can't help, I don't know about you, but if you watch The Passion of the Christ, we also feel devastated. We feel devastated because this is the Lord, after all. This is Christ our King, the true Messiah. He was treated with such utter contempt. We watch it and we think, how could humankind have acted in this way? I know it's Halloween, so horror movies are kind of, you know, the rage right now. You turn on the TV and they're, you know, you can basically find a horror movie. I'm not a fan of horror movies. I'm not hating on you if you're watching horror movies. You just got to watch out for the demons. Just telling you, all right, that's a fact, all right? Just if you start having uh, dreams at night, I warned you, all right? Already ahead of time, it could have been Pet Cemetery that you should not have been watching, all right? But do you? But in horror movies, it's a little bit different. Why? Because we watch horror movies, and they're very straightforward in this one way. Typically, it's very difficult, nigh impossible, unless you're a psychopath, to look at the slashers in the horror movies and find yourself identifying with them, let's say. Like, no one watches Silence of the Lambs and says, well, Hannibal wasn't a terrible guy because he wore people's as a coat. You know, I know we got kids, you know? Nobody thinks like, well, I've had those moments in my life. Nobody says that. And if they do, you're like, we're not having lunch with that. You know, they're not watching my kids. The gospel's different in the way that it, that it messes with us. The gospel is grotesque to us for a different reason. It's that not only is the sin terrible and grotesque like a horror movie, it's familiar to us, and that really unsettles us. You might be saying, well, how is it familiar? I wouldn't have been one of those guys. Well, let me just pose it to you in a different way that might be helpful. Let's say the demand for signs. The demand for signs, what is that in someone's life? To ask, to tell God, demand God, prove himself to us. Well, have you ever found yourself in such doubt, in such bitterness, in such dire straits in your life that you demanded that God manifest himself to you on your terms to prove that he's real? Anybody else? I know it's church time, so you're like, not me, I've only sung hymns. I'm sure that maybe that might have been you. Or how about this, that you've been angry at God, frustrated at God, because he did not act in accordance with the way that you see the world should work. And so you demanded that he change and he be conformed to your image, not that he conform you to his image. Does that sound familiar, more familiar to you? Or how about this? This need for control and familiarity and comforts, you know, that's really at the core of much of what is, what is happening with the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus shows up and he disrupts their corrupt system. They want nothing to do with him. They want to get back to business as usual, business as normal. Let me ask you, have you ever been so unsettled by someone or something in your life that you would be willing to break every rule, every boundary of justice if you could just simply end the chaos or the feeling of discomfort? Anybody? An example of this might be, you know, during Hurricane Harvey, lots of us, you know, got displaced from your home. Do you remember the feeling after like, okay, if you, even if you're a young person in the room, it was kind of like, oh, fun, I'm going to, I'm staying with my family for like two or three weeks. It's like week three, you start realizing I absolutely hate this. Anybody else? Like, I, I don't like not being in my home. You know, the whole family moves together and it feels like Thanksgiving until Thanksgiving extends. You know, you, Thanksgiving is fun because it's a day. It's like, what about a week? What about a month? What about a year? And then you start realizing, like, I love my family, but I don't know if I love them. <laughs> like, I should love them, you know? And you'll start doing anything. You, you know, the contractor comes in and says, we're almost done with your house, but we found some mold, you know? And you're like, hey, could you, um, could you just paint over it? 
Like how much paint would it require to contain this toxic mold? You know, you'll do anything. You'll cut corners. Start figuring out ways that you can get to be alone at your house. You know, you sabotage your family's car or something. You're like, oh man, sorry you got, you know, stuck at the gas station just so you could watch your TV show. How about this one? Mob mentality. We look at mob mentality and we think, I'm not really into that. But listen, have you ever been wrapped up in a moment and said something or done something that you would never have said or done in any reasonable moment if you had the quiet and the time to think about it? Anybody? Been in that moment? And you might be saying, I'm not really a mob mentality guy. I mean, but it, it, you could turn on the news and see this. And you're, what we t- typically think is, I'm not like that. Look how crazy that gets. I could never do that. And here's what I'll tell you. You've done this since you've been very young. All it took was like four of your bonehead friends in high school to convince you to jump off that thing, and you jumped off of it. You didn't know it was down there. You're just like, let's do it, you know. And in a reasonable moment, all you got to do is get a little bit older, by the way. I realized when I got on the roof like a month ago how dangerous being on the roof is. And it's just like all you got to do is get a little bit older, and you start like, realizing like you should wear different kinds of shoes on the roof. You know, I never thought about that whenever I was younger, just like a barefoot Aboriginal, you know, frolicking on the roof. But now I'm thinking about it. I'm considering it. Of course, mob mentality is easy for us to fall into. You fall into mob mentality when you watch a football game. You know, you tribe up with your teams. Pretty soon grown men paint their bodies and you don't even, like, afterwards, you're looking at yourself in the mirror, and you feel the shame. You're like, what did, why? You're not fit, but you're painted and naked in a game. This happens all the time. Now, what's the problem with all of this? Well, namely, the most fundamental problem is the one I mentioned, that we desire God to be conformed in our image, but the Bible tells us And there's nothing more crystal clear than this. God does not act in the ways that we act. He's not like us in this way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so when we begin to demand that God, who manifested himself in the flesh in the person of Christ, act how we expected him to act, say the things we expected him to say, take our side. Remember this, that man that comes to Jesus and say, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And what does Jesus say? Who made me an arbiter over you? Now that, you and I, it would make us offended. I'm supposed, I thought I was supposed to come to you to fix my family problems. What about Joshua whenever he shows up and he's about to go into the city and he sees this massive angel who's a warrior and he says, are you against me or for me? And you know what the angel of the Lord says? Neither, I'm for the Lord. God shows up in human history and we should not be shocked that he didn't say things that affirmed our priors. But we can't. We struggle with this. The scene on the road to Calvary is most unsettling, not only because it's tragic, but because of how plausible it is that we could replace those people, those characters, those names with ourselves and not miss a beat, if we're honest. If we're honest, we could say, not Caiaphas, but court, and it would make me sick to my stomach, but the fact is that it would be easy to do. Not hard, because it's the human condition. That's the bad news, right? That's heavy. There's something else that's laden in this passage, though. It's very subtle. It's a way out. A way that allows us to see the signs, not join the crowd in their mockery. Even though we can see ourselves in them, not join them. In other words, there's something laden in this passage that Christ came to tell us, although it is this way, it will not always be this way. 
I want to read to you verse number 21, this very odd character who's introduced into the story. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Seems innocuous. Almost every single one of the Gospels records this. Jesus is beaten so mercilessly that he seems that he cannot carry the cross and also keep up the pace. And so they compel a guy who's just not in the story. I want you to picture this. Not a guy who's in the crowds. He's just a guy that's trying to get through. He's a passerby is what it says. He's coming from the country, most likely coming from work with his sons. He's just trying to get through. And he gets compelled to enter into this story. But he enters into the story in a unique way in that he follows Jesus by carrying the cross. Are you guys catching what the Bible might be wanting to tell us? That there's a way to enter the story and be completely other. Namely, that we would take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him to the cross. That's the idea. You see, the call to be a disciple of Jesus is not merely, now hear me, I don't mean that it's not this. I mean that it's not only this. It's not merely that we believe that Jesus took up his cross and that Jesus died in our place and that Jesus rose. No, the call to be a Christian is to unite ourselves in faith to him and follow him in that pattern. Now that's uncomfortable and it's, it's incontrovertible. It's not controversial if you read the Bible. Yes, we're called to believe and we're also called to follow. Both of these are true. Now, the problem is that we've become very good at saying, yes, I believe these things, but the way of the cross has become foreign to us. Well, that's what Jesus did. And hear me, here's why this happened. It's not even malicious. We don't need to believe that when we take up our cross, when we deny ourselves, when we sacrifice, when we worship in these ways, that in some way our obedience is efficacious or effective at saving us. Our obedience can't save us. The Christian does not believe that we're going to do one holy thing from now until eternity that is going to be added to our moral record in such a way that would make us earn heaven. We can't earn it. Now, this is the good news of the cross. He's earned it. Having said that, the Christian ethic is that we will follow him if we believe. We will sacrifice. We will humble ourselves. We will seek to imitate him if we truly believe. That's the Christian ethic. Let me tell you what the Bible says in the book of James. James challenges the church and says, you believe that there is one God and you do good, but friends, even the demons believe and also tremble. No, he says, brothers, faith without works is dead. He says, true saving faith will have works. Another way to put it is that faith alone, faith standing alone will save us. But the truth is, true saving faith doesn't stand alone. It's always accompanied with fruit. Why? Because when Christ makes us alive together, we begin to produce the fruit just like sons look like a a spitting image of their parent. You guys ever seen that? Your kids start doing the things that you do for better or worse. Anybody that's a parent get recognized this yet? So they not only look like you, okay, but they start acting like you. So like one of the things that my wife and I love is like my son, I'll look back at him and he'll like cross his leg like me in the back seat. And he does certain facial expressions. He does certain things that look like me. He'll stand. I, I don't know why I do this, but I do this thing where I'll stand and I'll lean on something and then I cross my foot like this when I'm talking to somebody. And Jonas will do that whenever he talks to me. He just does these things. Now, there's a negative side to this in which he also does other things. Like I'll just out my, my wife for a moment. Like Jane rolls her eyes like someone else does that I know. 
the Bible tells us that if we have true faith in Christ, true saving faith in Christ, not only will we begin to look like him, our lives, our behaviors will begin to be like his. We will begin to imitate him. This is essential to discipleship. I want you to see the Simon of Cyrene going about his everyday life, dealing with the same things that you and I deal with on an everyday basis, and then all of a sudden this thing happens to him where he's, he's bid to come and enter into this story, not as one that mocks Christ, but as one who takes up the cross and follows him. In other words, there's a call that goes out to us, abandon the trappings of your old life, just like the disciples. You're not a fisherman anymore, Peter, but now you will be a fisher of men. Abandon the sins that beset you and follow Christ. I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel, but now you're mine. Abandon the selfish manner of life that consumes you, that consumes me, and follow Christ, denying yourself and following him. The book of Luke chapter 9, I want you to pick up on this because Jesus spoke of the cross before he ever went to the cross. He said to his disciples, if anyone would follow me, and come after me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That's the call of discipleship. Listen, friends, that was before the disciples even knew the crucifixion was going to be a thing. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to go to the cross, but hear me. Everyone who will come after me will also take up the cross. There is no exceptions. If we are to follow the Lord Jesus, it means we follow him into his death. We're going to do baptism in a minute. That is the sign. We follow him into the watery grave, into the death of baptism. We come out into the newness of life again, and our lives will be to the Son of God, is what Paul the Apostle says. So what does it look like? A few practical things, and then I want to close with Luke 23. One is the way of the cross is the way of humility. The way of the cross is the way of humility. In other words, our lives are no longer about us. Friends, your life, if you're in Christ, is no longer about you. You have to die to that. You have to die to that desire for your reputation. And hear me, there's a reason Jesus says daily. Because we can agree right now on Sunday, guess what's going to happen tomorrow morning? Your flesh is going to be alive and well, spry, ready to make it about you. I know because it happens to me every morning, and I'm not even spry, but my flesh is spry. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to get angry. I'm ready to be offended. My kids the other day ate a chocolate muffin, and I almost almost killed them. It was my chocolate muffin. I was seriously angry. I was so mad. I went in there, and I looked in there, and I was going to say, if they didn't eat the whole chocolate muffin, I was going to ground them. Because if they wasted half of it and threw it away, I mean, that's so offensive. My flesh is ready to fight from jump when I wake up in the morning. If I don't take up my cross and realize, you know what, like the whole grocery bill, like, isn't about me. Shocker, right? I'm a grown man, and I notice this in myself. Listen, friends, if you're married in the room, your flesh is so spry, you'll wake up in the morning, and you will be ready to fight your spouse over almost anything. You will be willing to grapple, to wrestle, to fight, to punch, to claw about who's going to be the one that makes the decisions in this marriage, Who's going to be the one that this is all about? Unless both of you admit that it's about neither of you. Now husbands will say, wait, I am the leader. You're the leader in dying. You're the leader in denying. You're the leader leader in humbling yourself and saying it's not about me. You start by saying it's not about us. That's how you lead. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you exaltation, true exaltation that comes without humility is absolute folly. It's destruction. If you find yourself exalted, but you have not humbled yourself, friend, the Bible says 
It's after that kind of pride cometh the fall. Number two, the way of the cross is the way of sacrifice. Jesus don't, doesn't only say deny yourself. He says take up the cross, the instrument of torture, the instrument of death, the instrument of pain, the instrument of suffering. There's something about the Christian life that intuitively and inextricably has atonement attached to it. Me in your place. I'll use the marriage analogy again. Every time that you wash the dishes for your spouse, it's you in her place or you in his place. He was meant to do this, and I'm doing it for him. And that's a Christian thing. It isn't the thing that you should write down to rip them about later. See, when we start to have lists that we've built up, I do this many times, I do this many times. You've done less times. You are terrible. I rule the roost this week until we redo the count. No. The Christian way is me in your place. How many times? Peter asked that question. How many times should we forgive? 70 times 7. He didn't mean 490. He says until you die. Because that's what Jesus did until he died. Him in our place. How many times? Till he breathed his last. That's the way of the cross. You say, oh, well, if we do this, Lord, if I live like this, then I'll constantly be abused. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that because Jesus did this, God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Christ. See, the issue is not that you'll be abused. It's that you don't believe God's word, and neither do I. We struggle here. We wrestle here. The reason we don't sacrifice is not because we feel like we're going to get beat up. Yeah, we fear that. You know why we fear that? Because we don't trust that God will defend us and vindicate us and care for us. We don't believe that he'll be the one to exalt us at our job if we would just but follow him at our jobs. And so what do we do? We get scheming with all the other groups. Let's try to figure out a way that we can po politically make me the next promotion rather than saying, I trust Christ. And I will lay down my life and whatever it is that he decides will be best. Or like Paul said, whether it be by life or by death, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is the way of the cross. Finally, the way of the cross is the way of imitation or the way of obedience. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and do what? Follow me. You know, we really, we really ripped on the old, uh, in the 90s, we ripped on the fundamentalists because they created the WWJD bracelet. But I'm just saying, it is in the Bible. What would Jesus do? It's kind of important. Now, I'm not saying that what would Jesus do means that if we do that thing in order to be saved, I think maybe we should have two bracelets. Maybe one should be like, what has Jesus done? But I'm just saying, if you don't have the what would Jesus do bracelet, then you know, we kind of live this ethereal life of doing what? Well, making our own plans, having our own ideas, and doing our own thing. That's not the way of Christ. The way of the cross is the way of obedience. It's the way of imitation. My life is lived for the Son of God. That's what Paul said. Or as Jesus said, while he lived on the earth, he says, I do the will of my father. I don't say something unless he tells me to say it. I don't act in a way unless he tells me to act in a way. I follow the will of the father. We're supposed to imitate Jesus in that we ought to live and act in such a way that if Christ were directly sitting next to us, we would not be ashamed. That's the call of our lives. In summation, there really are just two worldviews in this world. The first one, you and I were born with. And listen, we are well, it's weird, we're born with it, and we got a lot of practice. So we ended up being, so we're always constantly trying to uproot this worldview, and here's what it is. The worldview is that the world revolves around you and I. 
It revolves around us. That reality is supposed to bend to our liking, and everybody else is really just a character in our play. And so they need to get in their spot and say their lines. And we live like that. That's the worldview you and I were born with. But Christ offers something else. He says, to follow me is to deny yourself at the jump. That you're not the center of the play. That like Colossians says, that by him and through him and to him were all things made. That everything's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. And if everything is about him and he laid down his life and he chose to be a servant, then friends, you and I better believe we can be servants. The end of the passage tells us in verse number 32, the very, it says, those who were crucified with Christ also reviled him. Now that's half the story. The book of Luke tells us the whole story. Luke chapter 23, 39 through 43. I want to read this to you. And I want to read this to you to show you the grace of Christ. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So same exact line, right? If you're the Christ, you could fix this. And it's for my own personal gain. Jesus, the Lord, is being crucified next to him. And he thinks it's in order to be a part in his story where he gets pulled down. This is how we play. But then there's this other guy, totally different. This is the invitation, by the way, for us. Listen to how he responds. The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, this is the key line. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. That's the starting line for every Christian is whenever they, the veil's pulled back and you realize the justice of God would be the cross for us except Christ. But then he says, this man's done nothing wrong. Verse 42, and he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's so much filled with that. I can preach a whole sermon on it. He has not only has faith to who Jesus is, that he's righteous, that he's just, that he's holy, but that he's a king and he has a kingdom and he wants to be a part of it. All of this is wrapped up in this one line. And then Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. We see that the way of the cross, the entryway of the cross has nothing to do with our past behaviors. It has nothing to do with how good we are or if we're just getting by. If you listen to worship music on the way here or if you were sneaking in all those evil secular songs. The path to the way of the cross goes through one man and one man alone when we see that we justly deserve the cross and Christ did not, that he numbered himself with us, the criminals, we realize we need no further sign for God to prove himself because, friends, Christ Jesus is the sign. He is the sign that if you believe in that sign, you see all the other signs. There's something about believing the gospel that you see God's hand in every area of life once you believe the sign, once you believe the cross, once you believe the one who was raised up, who draws all men unto himself. You see him, you see everything. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity like I, like I believe in the sun, not because I see the sun, but because by the sun, I see everything else. I know the sun exists because I couldn't see anything apart from it. No, friends, he's done enough. He is the king. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And when we trust in him, the power to live, hear me, the power to live, like I just mentioned, is not in you and me. 
It's in the one who told that thief on the cross, tonight you're going to be, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Friends, if he will save you from your sins, will he not also empower you to follow him? He not only commands us, but he grants what he commands. The famous poem from John Bunyan says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. This is what Christ is doing on the cross for us. He bears what you and I cannot bear. He takes what you and I cannot take. And then he gives what you and I could never possess, namely the spirit of obedience to follow him. And so I bid you now, if you're a Christian, let us follow him with all of our hearts. If you're not a Christian, receive now the invitation of Jesus Christ into his kingdom. Don't wait. Don't leave out of here. Don't say, I got, no, trust the Lord Jesus. Today is the day of salvation is what the Bible tells us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we get to celebrate baptisms immediately after this. New life in you. We ask now, give us eyes to see spiritually what's happening in the heavens when we experience these baptisms. Let us celebrate with the angels as we get to experience death to newness of life. And Lord Jesus, for all of us who have been baptized, let this be a reminder of our baptism. Give us zeal to follow you more passionately. Forgive us where we've stumbled, Lord. Forgive us where we've fallen short of the way of the cross. Welcome us back. Thank you that you have welcomed us back. Thank you that you love us. Wrap your arms around someone that's weak right now. Lord God, lift up the heads that are downcast, strengthen the feeble knees right now. Help us to, to be strengthened for the walk, to take up our cross and to follow you and to, to ultimately see you face to face in glory. As we take of your supper now, my God, I pray that we not only experience the sobering repentance that comes with it, but also the empowerment, the satiation that comes from your table. Empower us now to live as children of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.